Hello everyone, welcome back to Seeker Plus. I'm your host, Julian Huguet, and I want to ask, what does the 4th of July mean to you? Well, if you're an American, it probably brings to mind backyard cookouts and fireworks. If you're not American, it's probably a pretty unremarkable date. But no matter where you live in the world, July 4th, 2012 was an important day for you, even if you don't know it. On that day, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, better known as CERN, announced they had evidence of a particle that was likely the long-theorized Higgs boson, often referred to in the news media as the God Particle. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of its discovery, so I wanted to take a more in-depth look at the Higgs boson. In this series, we're going to talk about how scientists even knew to look for it, how they found it, and what it means for the future of particle physics. But first, let's talk about that nickname, the God Particle, a moniker many physicists absolutely hate. Sure, it's a sexy name, it looks good on a headline or a YouTube title, and it's also led people to think that maybe the discovery of the Higgs boson has something to do with the search for God. But it doesn't. Its discovery isn't evidence of any sort of higher being, and it's not why scientists were searching for it. In fact, the nickname was sort of a joke. See, finding this particle took nearly 50 years and the most complex machine humankind has ever built. It was such an elusive thing that one physicist, Nobel laureate Leon Letterman, called it the goddamn particle. That's what he was going to call his 1993 book about it, but the publisher didn't like that, so he dropped the damn from the title. The book was a hit, the name stuck, and now physicists have to keep correcting people about it forever. Now, before you go accusing me of using that for clickbait in the title, one, don't blame me, blame Leon Letterman's publisher, and two, well, you're absolutely right. But hey, I made a point to clear it up right away. That counts for something, right? The particle's discovery may not resolve the debate about God, but it was nonetheless a huge advancement for our understanding of the universe. The Higgs boson made the behavior of other particles we've discovered make sense. It explained how atoms could exist and how stars could shine. It was the last big piece of a fantastically complex jigsaw puzzle. And it's not like scientists had a picture on a box to guide them. So how did they know to look for it? Before diving in though, I have to give you a primer on particle physics so we're all on the same page, but don't worry, it's gonna be totally easy. Partly because I am going to oversimplify just a bit, but hey, by the end you'll be like a mini expert on the subject. Think of how fun you'll be at parties. Okay, ready? I mentioned the Higgs boson was the last piece of a puzzle, and in a literal sense, that's true. It was the last particle predicted by the standard model of particle physics, which is our framework for organizing and describing elementary particles. You know how the periodic table of elements arranges chemical elements basically based on how big they are and how they behave? Well, the standard model is like that, but with particles even smaller and more fundamental than atoms. The standard model is split into two main groups. One group is the fermions, which are particles like electrons, and quarks, the building blocks of protons and neutrons. The other group is the bosons, which particles use to exchange energy with each other. You can think of bosons as the carriers of the four fundamental forces of nature. Well, maybe they carry all four, but definitely three. Photons, the particles that we can see as light, carry the electromagnetic force. Gluons carry the strong nuclear force, they're what binds those quarks together into protons and neutrons, 
And they're also what binds protons and neutrons together in an atom's nucleus. It's like they glue everything together. So you get it? Gluons. The weak nuclear force is carried by W and Z bosons, and it causes subatomic particles to decay into other particles. And there's a hypothetical boson called the graviton, which could be responsible for gravity, but we haven't found it yet. Photons, gluons, and the W and Z bosons are called gauge bosons. Then there's the Higgs boson, which is special. It's not the boson itself that's so important, but its existence points to something larger that solves a big problem with the standard model. Now, you may have noticed that two of the forces carried by bosons have the word nuclear in them, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. That's because they only work over incredibly short distances within the nucleus of an atom. The other two forces, electromagnetism and gravity, are extremely long-ranged. That's because photons and the hypothetical gravitons have no mass, and Einstein tells us that if something has no mass, it must travel at the speed of light. Why two forces can travel across the universe while the other two can't make it outside of an atom was a huge mystery for physicists, and it even caused some serious drama. In 1954, one physicist, C.N. Yang, gave a lecture arguing that all forces could arise from a concept called symmetry, which I'll spare you, don't worry, I'm not going to get into because I think we already are hitting the limit of how much jargon I can put in one episode. Anyway, renowned physicist Wolfgang Pauli was in attendance, and he kept pestering Yang. Pauli knew that Yang's explanation of attributing all forces to symmetries meant all bosons wouldn't have a mass and would therefore have unlimited range. Pauli knew that wasn't the case, so Yang's idea couldn't work. He shouted at Yang repeatedly, what is the mass? And when Yang said, uh, it's complicated, and he and his colleague Robert Mills just couldn't figure it out, Pauli told him that wasn't a good enough answer. Yang got so flustered, he actually stopped his lecture halfway through, and then he just took a seat. Yang and Mills, though, would end up getting the last laugh, because it turns out their idea of symmetries giving rise to forces was actually right. Their 1954 paper about this concept was the starting point for the standard model, and many years later it was discovered that gluons actually don't have a mass, but they interact with each other and form something like a big ball of quantum yarn that's confined to an atom's nucleus. The weak nuclear force, though, is different. And amazingly, we were put on the right track to figuring it out by a couple of guys who were just kind of making stuff up. You see, a neutron can decay into a proton, and likewise, a proton can change into a neutron, which is a really important step in nuclear fusion, the process that powers stars. This is where the weak force comes in. Scientists needed to explain how a neutron, which as the name suggests, has a neutral electric charge, could change into a positively charged proton and vice versa. So in 1957, a physicist and Harvard professor named Julian Schwinger made up the W bosons pretty much out of thin air. He didn't have any evidence that they existed, he just came up with a concept that seemed to work. Here's Schwinger's idea. When a neutron decays, one of the quarks it's made of changes, emitting a negatively charged W- boson, and thus conserving the overall charge. The W- boson quickly decays into an electron and an antineutrino. 
protons are the same, just flip all the minus signs to plus signs. To explain the W boson's short range, he gave it a mass, which again, he just made up because he knew the weak force had a short range, but he didn't derive it mathematically. He also combined the electromagnetic force and the weak force, creating what Pakistani physicist Abdus Salam would later dub the electroweak force. By the time Schwinger's paper was published, though, famous physicist C.S. Wu had already performed a groundbreaking experiment that showed, for the first time, that a kind of symmetry could be broken, which meant symmetry could still give rise to the weak force, but allow the bosons to have a mass. Wu's experiment also showed the weak and electromagnetic forces couldn't be joined the way Schwinger suggested. Schwinger didn't let go of his idea. Instead, he did what any great professor does. He gave the problem to his grad student Sheldon Glashow. Glashow figured he could make the two forces reconcile by inventing yet another particle, the neutral Z boson. And again, there was no evidence of W and Z bosons. They wouldn't be discovered for another 20 years. But hey, making up bosons, just claiming they have a mass, that's all well and good, right? Who doesn't do that for fun? But at some point, someone is going to have to explain where that mass comes from. What exactly is breaking symmetry? In 1964, six different scientists all landed on the answer within months of each other. They suggested that there might be some sort of field present at all times and permeating the entire universe. This field could interact with bosons, giving them mass and slowing them down. Peter Higgs was one of those scientists, and although he wasn't the first to come up with the concept, he took it a little further. After his paper was initially rejected, Higgs submitted it to another journal with a couple of added paragraphs stating it should be possible to excite this field and create a particle. That's right, because of a minor rewrite, he suggested what we now call the Higgs boson. Although Peter Higgs himself doesn't seem too fond of the name. He refers to it as the so-called Higgs boson, and to credit the other physicists who independently came up with the same idea, he proposed using their initials and calling it the Eggt mechanism. Can't imagine why it didn't stick. Here's the thing, though. When those six scientists proposed this mechanism, none of them realized how important it would be. They were all trying to solve an entirely different problem and get around something called the Goldstone Theorem that stated even when symmetries are broken, you should still get a massless particle, which would have shown up in experiments by that point. A field rectified that, and the scientists suggested, eh, you know, maybe it could explain the strong force too. And that was it. Nobody really took notice. The major breakthrough came three years later when a physicist named Steven Weinberg put it all together. Weinberg was trying to explain the strong force with this field and give mass to gluons, not knowing, as we know now, that they're massless, so he was getting nowhere. Then one day, Weinberg was cruising along in his Camaro when it hit him. What if instead of focusing on the strong force, he used this field to explain the short range of the weak force instead? What if it gave mass to the W boson? And I have to emphasize, at this time, almost no one took the idea of W bosons seriously. 
But Schwinger realized that the ideas fit together perfectly and could unify the electromagnetic and weak forces after all. It remains, I am certain, the most intelligent thing anyone has ever done in a Camaro, which usually involves jumping off of ramps into hay bales. And what was the physics world reaction to this earth-shattering revelation? Crickets. The idea finally started gaining traction in 1971, when another scientist showed that it all made mathematical sense. Soon the first hints of the Z boson were seen, and Weinberg's paper, which mistakenly credits Higgs first among the six scientists, quickly became the most cited paper in high-energy physics and would be for the next 30 years. Hopefully, I've made it easy now to see why. Suddenly, this hypothetical field could make everything work together beautifully. It could even explain the mass of other particles like electrons and quarks. And because of the particle Higgs proposed, it was actually possible to confirm if it existed. We just had to find the Higgs. The standard model was starting to take shape, and the path forward for the next 40 years of particle physics was set. But how does one go about finding a new particle? By smashing particles together at nearly the speed of light, that's how. I'm willing to bet you've heard the equation E equals mc squared, or energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Einstein's famous equation has some big implications for particle physics. For example, we measure the mass of subatomic particles with a unit called the electron volt. One electron volt is how much energy an electron gains as it's accelerated through an electric field with one volt of potential difference. It may seem weird to use a unit of energy to also describe mass, but it makes sense when you remember that mass and energy are related. An electron has a mass of about half a million electron volts. A proton has a mass of about a billion electron volts, or one giga electron volt, GeV. Since mass and energy are related, it also means we can make heavier particles out of lighter ones, if we give those lighter ones enough energy. Before we actually spotted the Higgs boson, scientists had calculated that it probably had a mass around 115 to 140 times that of a proton. So to make something that massive out of protons, we need to get them moving really, really fast like 99.9999991% the speed of light. But why use protons in the first place? Why not use something heavier that we don't have to get moving as fast? Or electrons and their antimatter counterparts, positrons? Or protons and antiprotons? Well, first off, protons are available in abundance and can be made relatively easily by breaking hydrogen gas down with an electric field. Antimatter, on the other hand, is not cheap or easy to make, and that's putting it lightly. By one estimate, it costs $25 billion to make one gram of positrons and three quadrillion dollars per gram of antiprotons. It's the most expensive stuff on Earth, even more expensive than printer ink. Would you rather use that or like a bottle of hydrogen gas that costs around 100 bucks? Lots of protons also means more collisions, which means more data. Protons are stable, so they won't decay into other stuff while they're zipping around an accelerator, and they're also charged, which means we can get them moving really fast using an electric field, and we can steer them and focus them into a beam with magnets. It's not entirely good news. Protons are made of smaller elementary particles, quarks, 
which are held together by a glue-on yarn ball sort of type deal. The inside of a proton is total chaos. Its makeup is always in flux. There could even be antiquarks that can pop up in there spontaneously. When you smash two protons together at high energy, what actually collide are some of the guts of the protons, and because they're always changing, you don't know exactly what is going to hit what, or with what energy. By contrast, an electron isn't made up of smaller parts. It's as fundamental as it gets. So when you smash one into a positron, you know exactly what to expect. My favorite comparison is an electron-positron collider is like a scalpel, while a proton-proton collider is like two garbage cans banging together. Still, there is an upside to the messiness of smashing protons. Because the outcomes are so unpredictable, they're great for exploring a lot of possibilities. And as it happens, the Higgs boson can be created from merging gluons. And as we've covered, protons are just silly with those. Still, when the search for the Higgs began, there was nothing that could get them going fast enough. So scientists set to work in the 1980s and proposed the biggest, baddest proton smasher imaginable. No, not the Large Hadron Collider. I'm talking about America's superconducting super collider. Yeah, sounds pretty super, right? The SSC, as it's known for short, was supposed to be an absolutely mammoth machine. It would have been a ring nearly 90 kilometers around running underneath Texas, capable of smashing protons together with an energy of 40 trillion electron volts. For reference, the most powerful collider the US has built to this day didn't quite hit 1 trillion electron volts. It was supposed to be so absurdly powerful that the governments of Europe nearly scrapped their plans for their own accelerator. Fortunately for us, they didn't. An Italian physicist named Carlo Rubio was convinced that the Americans wouldn't see the SSC through and managed to keep the European project alive. Rubio's instinct turned out to be correct. In 1993, the US Congress withdrew funding for the SSC, in part because the project was over budget and no other nations wanted to pitch in. Japan was one of the most likely partners, but the competing auto industries of the two countries put the partnership on thin ice. It fell through in 1992 when President George H.W. Bush visited Japan and was going to ask Prime Minister Miyazawa for funding, but instead he... well, he vomited on the Prime Minister. Back in the US, it also didn't help that physicists in other fields were griping publicly about how much funding the SSC was sucking up. Some even celebrated its demise, and apparently this is still a sore spot within the US physics community. Europe's planned accelerator wasn't nearly as powerful as the SSC. Its collisions would max out at 14 trillion electron volts as opposed to 40. But hey, it was getting built, and an actual accelerator beats a non-existent one any day of the week. Europe's accelerator is, of course, the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC. Hadrons are particles that interact with the strong force, like protons, in case you ever wondered. The LHC is often called the most complex machine ever built by humans, which is quite a claim. We did a whole episode on the most expensive machine ever built, the International Space Station, so to say something is more complex than that is no small boast. When you consider everything that went into the LHC, you start to understand just how mind-boggling its engineering is. 
It's the largest machine ever built. It's basically a ring 27 kilometers around and buried 100 meters under the Swiss and French countryside. Over 9,000 magnets run the entire length, and not like refrigerator magnets, but incredibly strong electromagnets that have to be chilled to less than 2 degrees above absolute zero. That's colder than the vacuum of space. At that temperature, they become superconductors, meaning tons of electricity can course through them without resistance, creating magnetic fields that can steer those protons as they're whipping around at nearly light speed. Those protons, by the way, are actually traveling around the ring inside tubes where the atmospheric pressure is less than the surface of the moon. You don't want your protons bumping into air molecules and slowing down, right? There are two of these tubes, and protons travel through them in opposite directions. They're brought together so they can collide head-on inside a detector. The LHC has four large detectors, and two of them were important for finding the Higgs. One of those, ATLAS, is the largest detector ever built for a collider by volume. It's 46 meters long and weighs 7,000 metric tons. The other, CMS, is more compact. That's actually what the C in the name stands for. But it's only compact compared to ATLAS. It's still huge, and it actually weighs twice as much. To make things more complicated, it had to be designed in pieces that could be transported through medieval European cities on the way to the construction site. And funny story about that construction site, when builders started digging, they uncovered an ancient Roman town, and the whole project had to be put on hold for six months while archaeologists sorted things out. Finally, though, in September of 2008, the LHC was completed and switched on. Everything went smoothly for about 10 days. Then a power cable blew, and 53 of the superconducting magnets that had to be kept super cold stopped being all of those things. They overheated and they damaged their coolant pipe, and the LHC had to pause operations for over a year while everything was fixed. Just before it came back online, the LHC suffered another setback. An electrical substation that powered part of the magnet cooling system failed. Only this time, it wasn't caused by a faulty wire, but a piece of baguette. Who could be responsible for such a thing? Was it a Frenchman upset at science for taking some of the mystery and romance out of the universe? Was it the 1993 US Congress that was bent on stopping this accelerator too? Was it the Higgs boson itself that wanted to remain undiscovered for its own personal reasons? No, in all likelihood, the culprit was a pigeon. Yeah, the most complicated machine we've ever made was taken out of commission by one clumsy bird. Albeit for, like, a day. When everything was fixed in late 2009, the LHC started up again, but only at half the power it was originally designed for. Still, it was enough to finally hunt for the Higgs boson. So, what was it that finally gave it away? What was the smoking gun scientists spotted that confirmed our ideas on how the universe worked? Here's the thing. It's actually impossible to observe the Higgs boson. Well, thanks for tuning in. Have a good night. No, I'm kidding. Of course, I'm not going to end the story like that. I didn't waste your time just to tell you this whole thing was pointless. The Higgs boson decays incredibly fast. It has a lifespan of just one zeptosecond, or 10 to the minus 21 seconds. No instrument we can make can snap an image of it fast enough. The scientists at the LHC already knew that before they even started, but they didn't spend all those years and billions of euros just to have a steady paycheck. 
The Higgs itself may be impossible to detect, but it is possible to see what it turns into when it decays. It prefers to decay into particle-antiparticle pairs that have a similar mass to itself. Now remember, the Higgs is chonky, and scientists were expecting a particle up to 140 times the mass of the proton. That means the particles it will most likely decay into is a bottom quark and an antibottom quark. A bottom quark is a heavier relative of the quarks that make up protons and neutrons. More than half the time, the Higgs boson decays into a bottom-antibottom pair, but that doesn't mean that's the only thing scientists were on the lookout for. The Higgs boson also decays into pairs of W bosons and other particles we haven't talked about yet, like muons and tauons. That's assuming a collision of two protons makes a Higgs boson at all, which isn't a guarantee. One of the tough things to wrap your head around with particle physics, along with pretty much everything else, is how much it's governed by probabilities. I said earlier that protons are made up of quarks, antiquarks, and gluons, and their exact makeup is constantly changing. When they collide, you never know exactly what's going to hit what, and what the energy of the collision will be. There's a certain probability that a collision will create a Higgs boson, and when it does, there's a certain probability the boson will decay into a bottom-antibottom pair, or W bosons, or something else. To make things more complicated, these particles could pop out anyway, even without decaying from a Higgs boson. The key is to calculate how often you'd expect to see these particles if a Higgs boson weren't created, and then you compare your calculations to your data. I cannot stress enough just how much data the detectors at the LHC put out. Before the LHC opened, the largest database in the world held a grand total of six petabytes. A petabyte is a million gigabytes, by the way. The LHC creates about a billion collisions every second, and at that rate, it can generate a petabyte of data per second. It would have taken just six seconds to fill up the world's largest database in 2007. That is way too much information to store. So, scientists have to design algorithms that keep the data they're looking for and throw the vast majority away. Even with sending most of the data straight to the recycle bin, the LHC today generates about 90 petabytes of data per year. All that information is crucial for particle physicists who want to be certain they're not mistaking a random blip for a world-changing discovery. They're looking for a statistical distribution of products, but with anything involving probability, there is some wiggle room in the outcomes. A coin toss may have a 50-50 chance of coming up heads or tails, but if you flipped a coin 100 times, it wouldn't be weird if it landed heads 53 times and tails the other 47. In statistics, the Greek letter sigma represents random fluctuation, with one sigma being the amount of randomness you expect to see. Five sigma means it's almost impossible that your data could be explained by random chance. That's like tossing a coin a hundred times and it coming up heads 99 times. Sure, it could happen, but it's almost guaranteed that something fishy is going on with your coin. When the scientists at CERN examined the data from billions and billions of collisions, they concluded that the particles they saw at the energies they saw could not be accounted for without a particle like the Higgs boson, to a certainty of 5 sigma. They revealed this monumental finding to the public on July 4th, 2012, and there was much rejoicing. 
Still, they wanted to be extra sure this wasn't some Higgs-like imposter, so they analyzed four times more data. Finally, after looking at over two and a half quadrillion collisions, they decided that was probably enough for them to confidently say they had found the bona fide Higgs boson. With that, the last puzzle piece of the standard model was put in its place. So, now what? We're done, right? We, we know everything, we can focus our brain power on life's other great mysteries like why toast always lands butter side down, or why loving someone doesn't always mean they'll love you back. I got a little real there for a second, sorry. No, of course not. Finding the Higgs boson doesn't mean there's nothing left to discover in particle physics. In fact, the Higgs boson actually hints at more questions, some tantalizing and some terrifying. Based on the data from the ATLAS and CMS detectors, which were in surprisingly good agreement, the Higgs boson has a mass of about 125 billion electron volts. That particular value is puzzling for a lot of different reasons. Some physicists were surprised it wasn't much higher, and suggested that it could indicate there are a lot more particles at higher energies we haven't discovered. This idea, known as supersymmetry, may mean we've found fewer than half of the particles out there, and only one of five Higgs bosons. This mass is also right at a precarious value. Scientists have theorized that the Higgs field could become unstable and change drastically, radically altering the mass of all the particles moving through it and basically destroying the universe. They've calculated that if the mass of the Higgs boson is below a certain threshold, that won't happen. And if it's above a certain threshold, it would have already happened. Want to guess where the actual mass of the Higgs boson falls? Pretty much right in the middle. Try not to think about it. I'm sure if the universe does unravel, the end will come quickly. The Higgs boson could also help us find most of the rest of the universe. 95% of it is made up of dark matter and dark energy. Dark matter is matter we know must be there based on our observations of the universe and the gravitational pull it must have, but otherwise it doesn't seem to interact with normal matter in any other way. A big candidate for dark matter are WIMPs, or weakly interacting massive particles. Because these particles interact via the weak force, and because the Higgs boson is such a sociable particle that likes to mingle with just about everyone, maybe we'll be able to see dark matter interacting with regular matter via the Higgs boson. Likewise, dark energy is energy that we know must be there, expanding space-time and stretching the cosmos out, and maybe the energy of the Higgs field could be responsible for it in some way. We don't know. We'll just have to keep searching. Almost immediately after the discovery of the Higgs boson was announced, scientists got straight back to work looking for the next major breakthrough in particle physics. Finding something after almost 50 years of searching was nice, but what they're really hoping to see next is something they're not looking for. Something totally unexpected that will raise new questions, requiring brilliant minds and incredible technology to come together once again. The LHC has actually been shut down for the last three years as technicians upgraded the beams and detectors. Now, barring any pigeon saboteurs, it should start up again this month and be running full-time by May, once again probing a little deeper into the nature of our existence. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this Seeker Plus on the Higgs boson. I hope you all enjoyed it, and if you did, be sure to let us know. You can find us on Twitter, at Seeker, and I am on there too, at Hug It Out. 
Feel free to share any ideas you might have for what you'd like to learn about. And until then, thanks for joining us on Seeker Plus.